Welcome to VLGA Connect. My name is Catherine Arndt and I'm the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. I hope you enjoy today's Connect episode brought to you by the VLGA, the national broadcaster on all things local government. Hello everyone and again in the absence of Chris Eddy, I'm Steve Cooper and welcome to the VLGA Governance Update courtesy of our good friends at Hunt and Hunt Lawyers and welcome to you Alison Watt. Thank you Steve Cooper, it's nice to be back and thank you for inviting me back. Alison, um, there's been a bit going on in terms of the weather around the state that certainly impacted on our uh, our colleagues in local government. Uh, yeah, it has dreadful weather conditions uh, across Victoria, Steve, and now um, our thoughts are with um, the council, many councils and communities who are, are dealing with the um, the flooding and the rain issues. And um, you know, well done to all those communities for um, uh, the the terrific work that they're doing. Oh, look, absolutely, Alison. We know that councils are the first port of call. Um, you know, when people are feeling threatened. So there's a service delivery aspect and, you know, the emergency management responses for, for councils right across the state, given the, the rain and the wind that we've had and conditions of roads um, will mean that uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people putting in long hours this week. Absolutely. And the rain has stopped in Melbourne for, for the moment. But uh, as we speak, there are communities, um, suburbs of Melbourne being evacuated as are some rural communities. So our thoughts are with all those folks. Absolutely. And it won't end this week, Alison, because all of that water's got to eventually go somewhere. And I know there are towns, you know, such as Shepparton, where, you know, we're still a day or two away from um, from reaching the peak. And then that's, you know, all going to go down the river. Well done and, and all our best wishes to um, those affected councils and communities. Now, what have you been up to, though, Alison, since, um, since we last spoke? Um, well, I have been up to uh, Shepparton, Steve. I was at uh, the City of Greater Shepparton last week uh, delivering a workshop for LG Pro um, on writing for influence. So that was a workshop for their folks um, out at the, the depot, um, a, a very engaged group of 15 participants, um, and the workshop was writing for influence. So just um, uh, uh, designed to assist uh, officers who write reports to council about how to get um, council to make good decisions and get good outcomes in the community. Well, it's a good start if good reports are written, um, Alison. There's been a similar theme on that too. I Coincidentally, I went uh, went through Shepparton uh, during the week. Tony and I went up to the Moira Shire at, uh, at Cobram and had a morning um, talking with the council about a range of, um, of governance issues, including uh, we did sort of touch for a while on, you know, council reports and how they impact on the quality of meetings. So, uh consistent theme there and um, also I got to uh, I got to do some work with the Whittlesea Council on their community leadership program because um, so we think it's a good thing particularly for those councils in administration um, to encourage community leaders to consider representation so moving on um, oh, one other just a, a bit of housekeeping from last week I received a lovely piece of email from um, a person that we correspond with occasionally um, really about inclusive language and um, and about times that we should use, um, particularly as a noun, uh, woman rather than female. And I was provided with a link to a website called Golan, which is short for Go All In, and we'll pop that link in the show notes for anyone that's really interested in the nuances of that. 
Well, in fact, and we all should be interested, Alison, because it's um, it's something we can just all be a bit better at. So that's, um, how would I say, feedback uh, given and received in good spirit. So thank you for that. Now, Commonwealth Games announcements. You've been following that this week, Alison. Yeah, I have. So um, the and the announcements have been made um, about which sport or which of the regional uh, cities uh, in Victoria will will host which sports during the Commonwealth Games, and so. Um, there's a list uh, available on the on the website, but um, you know, in in brief, you know, each of those four regional communities, so Geelong, Ballarat, Bendigo, and Gippsland, um, will all sort of get um, a number of sports which they will host as part of the game. So um, I, I won't go through the whole list, but because um, folks can have a look on the website themselves, but Geelong um, will host the aquatics um, and swimming. Um, Ballarat, the vast majority of the athletics, um, Bendigo and Gippsland, um, cycling um, and and Gippsland cricket. Yes, so um, I, as I say, I won't go. And there's netball and 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 also the the para sports, which yes. which will go with those. So, for example, Bendigo will have the track cycling and also the para track cycling at the same time. So the list the list has been released, and so now. Those councils and communities um, will be will start preparing for those. Um, I think Bendigo announced in their uh, public statement that they will look at a site um, currently owned by La Trobe University for the uh, preparation of the athletes village. So yeah. it's all, all happening. Yeah, and we'd we'd love to be able to talk to whoever the uh, the minister for. Commonwealth Games legacy is, but it's not a great time to do it now leading up to the election, but um, be assured as part of the VLDA Connect program after the election, we'll be working to um, get that minister and chat about the implications um, for those uh, those local communities. And Alison, the, uh, the link to the Victorian government website with all those announcements, we'll pop that in the show notes too. Now, um, you and I had a difference of opinion in our pre-match um, discussion around prayers and diversity statements because something's happened this week where, or not this week, but in the last month, two regional councils, Mildura and South Gippsland, have moved to dispense with the prayer and go to a diversity statement. So interesting that they're in the in the regional areas. And I just sort of presumed that prayers were sort of, council prayers were commonplace, but that's not your experience. Well, well, no, it's it's not my experience. I think you know certainly the last um, two councils that I've worked at, Steve, and I stand corrected, but um, I've got a reasonable memory. Um, you know, Macedon, Macedon Ranges and Mooney Valley, the councils that I've worked at most recently, have do not have a prayer. Um, so I, I thought that it was, um, and I, and I'll stand corrected on that. I thought it, that some ca- the councils were moving away from having a prayer, whether that's a metro versus uh, rural thing I'm not sure but um, interest, interesting discussion um, in the context of um, the decisions made by Mildura and a couple of other rural councils. Absolutely and it's certainly um, I hadn't heard anything um, about the South Gippsland move until an article was posted by the Rationalist Society around um, the debate at the Mildura Council and that's certainly worth a read and um, I'll see if we can't pop that in the show notes as well for anyone that's interested because there was a rather, I don't know, is this a bad pun, Alison, to say it was a spirited debate? Um, it, that's a terrible pun, Steve. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Good. I'm glad. But, but we'll, let, we'll let that one go through to the keeper. And I think, look, it's the, the context of the of the debate at, at Mildura was that 
um, you know, that can, the, the proposal to do away with the prayer was to make councils more inclusive places. Um, yes. and, um, so that, that was the, the context of the spirited debate, shall we say. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so that's that's there to be read. And speaking of, um, of feisty debates, Alison, um, LT Pro posted a rather interesting article, again, which will pop in the show notes, around calling for public involvement in the selection of public art, which I thought was rather interesting. And um, no doubt you've been involved in some willing discussions around public art. Um, yeah, look, it's all it's it always generates a great great debate, doesn't it? Um, public art because people either love it or hate it. And you know, you and I had a discussion about the banana, um, and you know, um, and what happened to the poor poor banana, which I think it's um, sort of been squirreled away now. But um, it is it's it's always very divisive. I think it's it's I think it's a good proposal to involve the public in um, determining what that public art or art in public spaces might look like um, but you're never going to reach common ground because it can be it can be so divisive uh, and and so contentious that you'll never reach consensus oh no absolutely Alison and I thought look the article was terrific and again we'll pop, pop that in the show notes it was in um, uh, on a website called The Fifth Estate, and it was written by Dorena Pajani of the University of Queensland. And it's just a beaut discussion around public art and the fact that public art isn't um, isn't like what you'd put in your lounge room, and that some and that I suppose it's the um, it's the bit I wrestle with about public involvement. Alison is that at times public art will be a bit edgy and challenging. And Chris and I have talked about this before. And I think that that one you mentioned, the banana in the uh, in the Yarra City Council, certainly um, is in that category of, as you'd say, kind of edgy public art that really, um, really gets people talking. Yeah, and, you know, they can be contentious at the time. And, you know, when, when public art is installed, you get the, you know, the public commentary that, you know, there's, there's better things to spend ratepayers' money on and, you know, council should concentrate on, you know, roads, rubbish and rates, blah, blah. But we get we become accustomed to it. And you and I had the discussion about the art on public freeways, certainly the Eastern Freeway public art. You yeah. know, we, we, we learned, we grow to love it and get accustomed to it over time. And so when it's not there, we'll say, well, what happened to the gnome, you know? Um, <laughs> so yes. Equally, that, the, the article makes the point that, and I think I'll get the word right, that some public art is iconoclastic and kind of reflects the views of a society at the time. And we've talked previously on this show about, um, for example, public art um, depicting Captain Cook or in America depicting Confederate generals might be non-controversial at the time, but as um, community attitudes move become very controversial. So that's um, yes. There are just such a range of dimensions in this, and that's, I guess, my concern around. Um, and I'm not saying don't do it, but the, the the risk of of putting public art out to kind of, um, I, I guess, a pub test might mean that um, it becomes recognised for its blandness. Potentially, potentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But equally, as you're, never, you're never going to please everyone, are you? You know. No, exactly. And if anyone does read that piece, I didn't know about Richard Serra's piece, Tilted Ark, 
which was a particularly controversial art piece in uh, in New York City, and that was an eight year battle. And that and that piece is also like the banana now in storage, um, and a very interesting read, Alison. Yeah, and there, look, there are many sort of iconic pieces of art around Melbourne, aren't there, Steve? I mean, you and I are both old enough to remember the Yellow Peril, as it was called, um, and you know, even the sort of the cheese stick and so yes. forth into the you know um, into the freeway, and there's some uh, uh, art pieces along some major freeways in the western suburbs. There's the House in the Sky on the Ring Road. Love uh, the House in the Sky, Alison. The House in the Sky, um, one which was sort of less popular and is. Um, was a, a number of sort of uh, concrete slabs um, along the Calder Freeway, um, which have a bit a bit faded faded now, but you know pretty controversial at the time. But we've become accustomed to them now. Well, and isn't it interesting? The fact we're talking about it now is probably part of the point of public art um, to you know have those discussions and really get a sense of place. So, yeah, commend that to anyone that's interested in reading that piece. Just moving on to another matter, you've been. Um, following the, uh, the story in relation to the, for, the past employment, if you like, of former Victorian CEO Sharon Kelsey at the Logan City Council in Queensland. Yes, Steve, this is an article um, in the Brisbane Times um, from last week where um, Sharon was appointed the CEO at Logan um, City Council in 2017 um, and then uh, made a public interest disclosure to the Crime and Corruption Commission in Queensland about um, alleged uh, potential misconduct about the then mayor, um, and then um, the the Crime and Corruption Commission then um, contacted council laws about the public interest disclosure, um, um, and and warned them uh, or cautioned them about um, taking any retaliatory action because of that public interest disclosure. Isn't that uh, an extraordinary communication? I mean. Probably they had to, but extraordinary that it happened and that anyone in public public office would need that reminder. Uh, it fell on deaf ears, Steve, because um, a couple of days after that, um, the council uh, dismissed Sharon. Look, we're not going to go into too much detail, but there's been a, a protracted and lengthy court battle um, ever since, um, which has been going on for some some years, obviously. So we'll we'll just keep our eye on that, but not go into any detail, Steve. I don't think. Yeah, I think you're right, um, Alison. We'll pop the link to the Brisbane Times article again in the show notes for anyone that's interested, and and we'll keep an eye on any developments um, on that one. But I'm interested that you went to public interest disclosures in that story, Alison, because um, IBAC's been in the news in the last week, um, starting with or uh, including a report on 7.30 um, during the week. Yeah, so IBAC, um, IBAC had released its report into um, the risks around, uh, well, the strengthening of um, lobbying and the subsequent corruption that can be a, uh, a result of lobbying um, at, at both the state and local level. Um, so there was quite a bit of material released by IBAC on Thursday the full report, uh, the a summary report, media statements. David Wolf um, has uh, done a video that, that you can um, have a look at on the IBAC website. Um, and there was um, the the uh, commissioner, Mr. Reedlick, was on uh, uh, the seven thirty report on Thursday night, um, talking about, uh, about about the release of the report and the contents of the report and recommendations uh, going forward as a result of uh, of that report. So two things out of that for me, um, Alison, I won't go into detail um, 
in the report, which is there to be read. But I was really fascinated that tucked away in recommendation three when we were talking about lobbyists was some commentary that lobbyists should be defined on the basis of the activity that is being undertaken, like the nature of the lobbying, not whether someone defines themselves as a lobbyist, which I would have presumed is you know, a bit of a risk for people in local government. Yeah, um, certainly there's there's four recommendations, Steve, and that, rec- that third recommendation uh, is that the government introduces legislation to regulate lobbying at both state and local levels of government. And and that is, that is part, you know, part B is that lobbying be appropriately defined in legislation. So, um, you know, interesting, as you say, uh, uh, ramifications, um, or consequences for for local government in that will be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, I can I can envisage a um, VLJ connect on this topic coming up, Alison. And then the other part, of course, the most asked question in local government almost at the moment would have to be when is the Sandon report into the city of Casey going to be released? And Mr. Redlick touched on that in his seven thirty uh, report interview. Yeah, he did, and. Um, I think it's it's public knowledge that um, that Mr Woodman has uh, exercised his uh, a legal right um, to use the legal process to um, uh, to delay the release of that report. Uh, Mr Redlick um, indicated um, when questioned by the seven thirty report that there were a number of IBAC uh, reports being um, being delayed, the release of which are being delayed, um, uh, inc- including Sandon. So. I think that raises the question around timing, um, you know, in the lead up to a state election. But um, um, certainly, that that's a legal process that's available to to people to use, and it's being used. Um, I think much to the frustration and chagrin of um, of the commissioner. But we will leave that there, Alison. I suppose the other part, um, really, the. Um, the context for a lot of this too is that there is an ongoing public debate around the uh, the lobbying. Uh, sorry, not the lobbying. Where am I going there? Around the you know the ongoing powers of the of integrity commission, such as IBAG, and the um, the question of whether there is adequate budget for them to perform their work. So as the um, as the election as we roll towards the election, we'll keep an eye on those um, as well, Alison. Sorry, just adding to that, Steve. I mean, you know, this the IBAC report it also talks about donations made, you know, uh, to candidates at state and local level. And uh, we know that um, we know that local government candidates have to declare um, donations received, but there's no onus on the donor to declare donations made. So there's some there's some recommendations to tackle that as well. Yeah, and I suppose the other one you touched on, Alison, was um, some emphasis on catching up where donations are split in some ways, which is an interesting one because the, the current Local Government Act already um, creates that obligation, but it would appear there's a suggestion the obligation might not have, have sufficient strength at the moment. Indeed, yeah. yeah. And legisl- so legislative reform is uh, proposed to address that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So back to watch this space. And just one uh, other bit of good governance detail, Alison, to close out um, our week. Um, The Minister has announced the composition of panels to review the electoral structure of councils. Um, Yes, Steve, the Minister made these uh, announcements um, this this week. Uh, So there'll there'll be two panels. Um, one will be chaired by um, the Honourable Frank uh, Frank Vincent, um, and the other by Julie um, Eisenbys. So they um, um, 
will conduct um, reviews into the electoral structure of, I think, 39 councils who yeah. uh, will need to comply with the new re the requirements under the new Act, um, which says, the Act says that, that all councils must have uh, single-member wards unless um, the minister determines otherwise. And it's got to be gazetted otherwise. There's a few messages in all of that, Alison, and one is for anyone interested in this topic to give sections 13, 14, 15 and 16 of the Local Government Act a really serious read um, because you're quite right in the way that you describe that, that there is an option for unsubdivided or multi-member wards with equal numbers in each ward, providing the minister thinks it's a good idea and so gazettes, as I understand. Now, the other thing, in terms of those panels, it was interesting that um, Frank Vincent will be supported by Liz Williams, the former um, Deputy Commissioner of the VAC. Um, Julie Eisenbeis is supported by Tim Presnell, who's a former Local Government Victoria um, officer and a source of um, unfailing common sense um, and who's well across this topic as well. So, Alison, there's a few uh, others who are named uh, on the reserve bench just in case um, uh, they're required. Um, nothing like getting a footy analogy in there, Steve. Um, yes, so on the bench uh, to fill in when panel members are unavailable will be Prue Digby, Kelvin Spiller, who's well known to local government circles, Janet Dorr and Louise Martin on the bench bit of experience there too. So yes, those 39 uh, councils affected by the reviews and, the, and and they are listed in the order as well. Um, we'll be obviously devoting a bit of time to that uh, electoral review process, Alison, because it always gets a bit of interest. Yeah, and um, certainly um, when the consultation uh, for on the, on the new sort of local government act, you know, a lot of councils were um, pretty outspoken about the, uh, about the proposal to uh, have single member wards. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out now the legislation's in place. Absolutely. And thanks to our correspondent for alerting us to uh, um, to the release of that of that uh, order, um, Alison. Now, just to wind things out, there's um, been some events on um, this week and we've got something coming up. And I, I know our friend Tony Rowney at Hunt and Hunt sat with Amy Johnson on an LG Pro panel on social media uh, at the uh, social media conference. Uh, he did, yes. Uh, quite a good turnout from all accounts at the uh, social media conference uh, held by LG Pro. And in the MAV conference has all, uh, also been held this week, Steve, um, and the uh, and the dinner. So um, there would have been pretty good representation on that as well, I imagine. Lot, yeah, lots of social media on that, and including I did see some awards, um, some achievement awards for uh, councillors who had... Uh, achieved sort of landmark milestones in terms of their service to their community. So congratulations to any and all of those. And probably, Alison, the thing to I'd like to just round out with, we touched last week on the fact that the VLGA will be running a online session uh, from 11.30 to 1.30 on the 28th of October on electing a mayor, what's to know, and I can announce our eminent panel. Eminent. Eminent. So what we've got, and I should start with our international panellist, uh, Anne McCormick from Canada, uh, who's written a book called, because I've got it right here, The DNA of Great Leaders, Key Attributes of the Best Mayor, Mayors and Board Chairs, um, as, and as well as Anne, who did speak to Chris Eddy on the Local Government News Roundup during the week, but we'll dig a bit deeper. Uh, we've also got the also eminent Nolan Duff and Liana Thompson, and in fact, Liana has uh, that rare distinction of being a former mayor as well as council CEO. 
yeah, and Liana has been um, uh, been in the news, so to speak, this week because she has um, left her post, uh, CEO post, and um, has taken up a director position at Wyndham. So we wish her all the best. Absolutely. So we're looking forward to that. Registrations are available on the events page on the VLJ website. So um, it should be really interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Alison, great to speak again this week. Thank you so much for coming along today to the Thank VLJ you, Studio. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I enjoyed it. And just in closing, Alison, as always, we thank our good friends at Hunt & Hunt Lawyers for sponsoring the governance update. Uh, we'll have another special guest um, on the show next week and look forward to seeing you then. Cheerio. Bye-bye all.